This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis, a video of a protest in his hometown Houston racked up millions of viewers on social media. You've got hate in your heart for people of color. Get over it. Because this city is a minority-majority city. And this city is a city where blacks and whites and brown and legal and illegal all get together because we judge each other by the content of our hearts. That speaker wasn't a protester. It was the Houston police chief, Art Acevedo. He's the guest on this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. Hey, Chief, it's good to see you. Uh, uh, you and I always have a good time together, and it's uh, even in these crazy times, it's good to have you on the show. That's always, hey, it's always uh, good to be on with a, a great American and, and a great friend and someone that uh, really uh, is making a difference out here in, uh, across the nation. Chief, so tell me a little bit about how you grew up. Um, born in Cuba, right? Yep, yep, born in Cuba uh, at, at four and a half on 12-12 of 68. We, uh, we received uh, political asylum, and uh, we were able to come here as uh, Cuban refugees. And uh, my dad used to tell us, I'm the baby of four, and my dad used to tell us, hey, kids, from here, from, from here to the moon, there's no better place on earth than the United States of America. And, and, then, and then raised us to understand that the United States had given us the greatest gift of all, which is freedom, man. I mean, you know, the freedom to pursue your dreams, the freedom to say what you, what you want to say. And, uh, and he always used to say, don't forget that the, the worst day with the freedom the United States gives us is better than the best day under communist rule. So uh, that, that, that taught us to be the, 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 the half glass full mindset instead of the glass half empty and said life ain't fair, so get over it. And when you get knocked down, pick yourself up and get to work. So, so why did the family, I grew up in Miami, and so you know we had a large Cuban-American population there. And, uh, and, and we know that people were also in, in New Jersey and New York, but I didn't hear about a lot of Cubanos going out to L.A. How did you guys uh, break away from the fold and head out west? 
you know what? My dad didn't want us to be around a bunch of Cubanos, even though we 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 very much love our culture and we've never backed away from it. I, st I still I'm the only kid out of the four. The baby's the only one that'll actually roast whole pigs in the yard and stuff. But he wanted us to assimilate, man. So he said we're going to go to L.A. And we also had an aunt and uncle that escaped on a boat because we're the original boat peoples here of the uh, of the 20th century. And uh, we went to L.A. And, you know, I really believe had we stayed in Miami or gone in New Jersey to one of the pockets of uh, Cuban population, I, I, I don't believe I'd be here today. The police chief in the largest city in Texas and the fourth largest city in the United States, soon to be third largest city. So I thought it was uh, very forward thinking. And, uh, you know, uh, Cali's a great state. I love California. I love Texas. Uh, and, and I thought it was a very good decision on his part. Interesting. Say more. Why do you think you ended up as a different person in L.A.? I mean, by the way, as someone who grew up in Miami, I can see it in you. I didn't even know that backstory, and you and I have now known each other for a couple of years, but now I understand why. And uh, by the way, you know who else you're a little bit like is my girl Padma Lakshmi, the chef. And not until she explained to me that she was also an immigrant from India instead of Cuba— and instead of moving to New York, like a lot of folks did, she moved to L.A. Yep. And it explains why she's got so much flavor. Same with you. Yep. So you guys are both kind of uh, cooking with spices. Uh, why do you think it changed you? Because, you know, we were, if we were stayed in Miami, we probably would have, uh, you know, people sometimes tend to, uh, they, they tend to gravitate towards their own, right? If you're Cuban and you got a bunch of Cubans, you're going to hang out with Cubans. So coming to L.A. It forced me like in, when I started elementary school in 1969 at Norwood Elementary School, I was the only non-English speaking kid. So think about that. I mean, the only kid that didn't speak a word of English. There was no uh, English as a second language. None of that stuff. And so uh, I think that it, it forced me to learn about other cultures and other kids and and by the end of the first year, it forced me to be bilingual. And, you know, I'll never forget that the second non-English speaking kid a kid from Mexico named Armando Gayona uh, came in the third grade. And uh, I ended up having to be like his training officer. You know, they, they, they assigned him to me for like an entire year in the third grade to teach him the ropes of being an American. And to this day, we are still dear friends. And uh, I became a cop. And six years later, he became a cop. We both served on the California Highway Patrol. And, you know, that's what our, our mothers passed away a week apart from each other. I'm, I'm, I, you know, it's just life just, you know, God brings you together with people. And, you know, I just think that again, uh, I love the Mexican culture that you learn about in, in Los Angeles and the Indians. And, uh, you know, you got Ethiopia, uh, Chinatown, little Tokyo. It was a big melting pot. And I think that that's what our country is. Uh, and I think that's what prepared me to serve here in Houston, which is the most diverse big city in the country. So, so what were you like as a high school kid? Were you were you loud? Were you quiet? Like, like who were you? Uh, you know what? I I, uh, I think it's safe to say that I was a little loud. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I I I have a a, a a sense of humor that sometimes would get you in trouble. Uh, you you use humor to to uh, deal with issues and deal with stress, but also to get to the day and. Uh, you know, in high school, uh, I was not uh, the kid that went to all the proms and stuff because I, I just wasn't that crazy about high school. I mean, I just felt like, oh, Lord, you know, it's like it's boring. I used to read Newsweek, Time Magazine, uh, U.S. News and World Report, all the different weeklies. Half the time in class, I'd be reading those 
those magazines because I was more interested in world events and current events than in the, you know uh, math or writing uh, you know writing uh, an essay. So, but I loved uh, uh, I I loved uh, the fact that my high school. Uh, was near home and I was able to walk to and from and uh, and I met a lot of dear friends that to, to today we still remain friends. And so did you head right into law enforcement after high school or how did you make your way into uh, the California Highway Patrol? What's interesting is I grew up with a, uh, like I said, my dad really, my mom, they, they, they raised us to be patriots, to love the country that gave us, again, the greatest gift of all. So growing up, I was either want to be a police officer my dad was a cop before the communists in Cuba, and he used to tell, you know, really funny stories about policing. You, remember, there's a third world policing, so there was, the Constitution wasn't. I mean, you, I had explained to him once I became a cop, Dad, that's not the way we do things in this country, right? And so uh, <laughs> we became uh, – so I'd like to hear those stories. Then I either wanted to be that. I wanted to go to West Point and be a, a, a commissioned officer. Uh, or I wanted to be a prosecutor. But, you know, I, I really believe God puts you where he needs you. He's got a plan for you. I think there's a plan for all of us, and we just listen to our inner voice. And so out of high school, I ended up going to a community college because I was, you know, again, the, the son of immigrants, and going straight to a four-year college just was in the cards for me. My my dad, I mean, I lost my first tooth because we couldn't afford a, we couldn't afford a, a root canal, right? So my, my one of my molars I lost. So it's a, it was a different path. But, you know, uh, went to law school, for a semester and a half and halfway through my second semester, uh, you know, I asked, I asked myself, do they really need a hundred, that 150,000 lawyers in California, do do they really need another one? And the answer was no. And as luck would have it, we had a a police chief that had just, that was getting ready to retire. That was going through law school. He looked at me and says, Art, you can always go back to law school, but you keep talking about how you want to be a police officer. So I went and uh, joined the California Highway Patrol uh, and I've never looked back. I mean, I love being a police officer. Uh, challenging times right now, but I always tell people, especially my leadership cadre, we don't get paid for the good times. Uh, we get paid to lead during the bad times that really bring opportunity to move the organization and the uh, profession forward. And so I love it. Uh, glad I glad I made the choice, and uh, I've never regretted it. And what do you love about it? Because it's interesting. When I hear you describe that love, I'm reminded uh, years ago I met uh, a woman named Ruth Zuckerman who uh, trained to do a whole series of things, but not until she started teaching Pilates classes and later helped start Soul Cycle and Flywheel. She, she said then she really was happy. And um, when you started to talk about becoming a cop, that you reminded me of her face when she started talking about training people and cycling. So what is it about being a cop that you enjoyed so much? Because you can really make a difference. I mean, it sounds canned. It sounds corny. But if you do the job like most police officers do, you touch lives. And you touch lives for the right reason. Uh, I was one of those corny guys that what I would arrest people in East L.A. And, uh, you know, I, I, I talked to them about things. And, they, and, and, and some of the guys that were gang members, they'd get angry. Why are you being so nice, Holmes? I said, <laughs> because this isn't personal, man, and you're a person. And, you know, and there's more to life than getting yourself arrested for whatever uh, they happen to be arrested for. And so I just really believe that as a, the profession of being a, law, a professional peace officer, um, you really have an impact on society. Uh, and then I really feel like the empathy. My mom used to feed the entire neighborhood. 
uh, and my dad. I mean, they 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 were the most generous people that I've ever met. That we we were lower middle class, but we lived a, li- a rich life. If that makes any sense, and so policing is about people. It's about relationships. It's about connecting. It's about uh, helping people when they're at their worst. And I th- I think that it's a profession that's uniquely positions officers to do those kind of things. And so um, I can tell you that there's nothing that makes you feel better than somebody uh, that you maybe see in court like eight months later. I remember as an officer, some guy comes up to me and says, hey, uh, this guy was actually a drunk driver. And he says, hey, I want to th- – a drunk driver that fought me, by the way. He was really uh, – put up a good fight. And uh, and he comes up. I barely recognize that. I was like eight months later in court. He says, hey, I want to th- – I'm so-and-so. And you- I'm the guy you arrested. Well, hey, sir, how are you? He goes, I want to thank you because you changed my life. My life was spiraling. And because of the arrest you made, um, it really was eye-opening. And I've been doing A, B, C, and D. And, you know – when you when you get those kind of things and you uh, and you know that you've touched a life, uh, it's something that uh, I don't regret and uh, and I look forward to uh, continuing to serve here at least for. A, we're dropping like flies, police chiefs. So <laughs> I don't take this yeah. for granted. I, I continue to serve until the good Lord closes this chapter in my life. Tell me a little bit about uh, about when you've been scared. Do you ever find yourself scared, or are you one of those thrill junkies? And, and actually, you are scared at times or have been scared at times, but that's actually part of what you like. You know, I think that I think that this, you're, you're not scared at the time because of your training and the way that we're wired. Uh, you, you, you just react and you respond. But then after the fact, you reflect uh, but the only time that I really think that in my career that I can think back where I was truly scared was during the Los Angeles riots after the Rodney King incident, um, where, you know, fi- about 55 Americans lost their lives during the riots. Uh, firefighters were shot on the first night. And uh, I think I found myself scared, concerned, because you just – you know, everything was on fire. You didn't know what was going on. There wasn't good intelligence. There wasn't good briefings. Uh, but I th- in my career, I think that's probably one of the, the few times. Look, I, I've grown since then to realize that uh, this is a dangerous profession, but I also believe in destiny. And no matter what you do for a living, when it's your time, it's your time. And so I decided after that, you just got to have your faith in God and just do your best to be safe, but ultimately you're in God's hands and whatever happens, happens. And uh, you get the gift of uh, hopefully eternal life uh, through the blood of Christ and we move on from there. Chief, how did you end up becoming a chief? You know, you just described uh, being on the force, being a 20-something-year-old kid during the Los Angeles riots. Um, how, do, how does someone end up becoming a chief? As you said, fourth largest city, president of the major cities. Police Chiefs Association. So I'm assuming that wasn't a guaranteed path. Oh, God, no. I mean, I would say it's luck is part of it. Uh, the audacity to believe in yourself and when you're told no, uh, not to take no for an answer and just keep going and, uh, you know, knock again and uh, persevere. And uh, about two years on the job, I was in East Los Angeles. So I came on at 21, so I'm about 23, two years on the job. And uh, the CHP would give seniority points to people a quarter point per year of service. 
So this this sergeant comes in from Northern California because when you promote the CHP, uh, if you're north, you're coming to LA, right? You, the two places you're going to go are LA or, or the Bay Area because it's expensive and it's dynamic, and you know a lot of people like to go back to Aurora's. So this is a true story. So don't laugh, but I asked this guy. His name was Mike. I, I wanted uh, they used to call him Mikey, old time sergeant, just promote. I go, hey Sarge, what did you study to become a sergeant? And he looks at me with guys my witness the sergeant's office. He goes, he's a fat guy. He goes, oh, I don't know, Mo. Uh, doing the the Three Stooges voice. I don't know, Mo. Uh, I got this on seniority. Goes on his back and starts spinning and kicking like the Three Stooges. Going, nyak, 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 nyak. And I remember thinking to myself, if that guy, <laughs> if that guy can leave and be a sergeant. I think because at first I thought I was going to just say, man, I got my foot in the door. I'm going to do I'm going to do 30 years and I want to retire. <clears throat> but with two years on that, I experienced that. And then a sergeant by the name of uh, Mark Hammond wrote on my performance appraisal that I needed to start thinking about promoting. And uh, with two years on the job, which was kind of unusual. Uh, but I realized that, you know, the CHP, when I got on, we used to joke uh, that I thought the C was for for. Cuban Highway Patrol or Chicano Highway Patrol, but uh, I don't want to offend anybody, but there was hardly nobody of color in leadership positions. So we started to say this is the Caucasian Highway Patrol, right? And so, you know, there were like close to 100 captains at the time, like one was a Hispanic. Think about that in California. Uh, we had one Hispanic chief, one black chief. That was it. And so I realized that sometimes when you're an immigrant or you're a person of color or you come from a lower socioeconomic uh, circumstances, we're too happy just getting our foot in the door. But you see, we have to position ourselves to be change agents, and I felt that I wanted to increase my, my sphere of influence. And so I just started seeking promotions, and the way that I did it was, uh, same again, two years on the job, very, very, it was a very, uh, I think, impactful my second year. There's a guy named Jimmy Skidmore coming in to be a tr the train out of the academy, brand new kid. I was a brand new training officer. No one wanted to train this kid because his dad was uh, just promoting to assistant chief of the California Air Patrol. And so I volunteered once I decided that I wanted to make this my career. I'm going to promote. And so what I did, I trained this guy for 15 working days. And for 15 working days, I actually quizzed him about his job, his father's career trajectory. What assignments did he take at what ranks? And I actually... People don't, he doesn't even know this, nor his dad. I actually used his dad, Jim Skidmore's career track, and actually copied it and duplicated it. And I, and I sought the same positions. I ended up being a chief with the California Air Patrol and then ended up being a police chief in Austin, now here in, in Houston. So I was a 23-year-old kid that came up with that diabolical plan. But you know what, though, Chief? I love that. And it's funny, the number of people who write that. I was talking to a big kind of Hollywood mogul last week, Charles King, great name, runs a big multi-million dollar studio, and he said something very similar. He said that he figured out what he wanted to do by interviewing people, and he would interview everyone, he would write it down, and I was saying to him last week, I was saying, because I've heard Will Smith, the actor, tell me the same thing, that there's something about, I think particularly maybe men of color, that we like to kind of write down and kind of have a plan, and it makes it, I think, maybe more real, maybe, and it, it gives people kind of a, a way forward. But I, 
I've heard it from a variety of people, but for whatever reason, from a lot of men of color, I hear a version of what you're saying, which is, let me figure out a model. Let me ask a lot of questions. Let me write it out. And then I've got my own cheat sheet going forward. That's it. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, but I, I, I love that. And there's something, there's something in it and something there. Um, Chief, tell me, as you become not just an officer, but a chief, I imagine that there are a whole new set of things that you've had to think about. What are some of those things that when you're 24, 25, even 34, 35 aren't on your mind, but that today as someone who's running, who's a chief, that are actually things that you thought about that you weren't even, maybe I'll say it differently. What do you think about now as a chief that back when you were a on foot patrol or what have you never even occurred to you? Well, you know, the higher you go up in an organization, uh, you know, you, 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 when you're an officer, a lot of times what you see is right in front of you. You're very, you're very focused. What's in front of you, you come to work, you, you handle your calls, you, make, you take your reports, you write your arrests, and you go home. You know, you don't have an in-basket, you got nothing. You're done. You're done for the night. But as you go up, the problems that you have to deal with, and I think that the, the field of vision that you have to effectively have has to expand, right? So, you know, we, we always talk about the big picture. You, you're, you've got to get the big picture, and the more responsibility you have, the bigger picture uh, and, and landscape that you have to worry about. As a matter of fact, I remember being the lieutenant uh, commissioner, the, the, lieutenant, the administrative lieutenant for the commissioner of the Higher Patrol in Sacramento. And uh, one day I knocked on his office, and uh, he says his name was Spike Chemical. He goes, hey, uh, Ace, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for that big picture you guys are always talking about <laughs> as a joke. But the truth of the matter is, as you, uh, a police chief has to look about impacts. What are the impacts of uh, our actions? What are the impacts of our decisions? What are the impacts not just to the individual employee, not just to the unit, not just to the organization, but what are the impacts to the, to the city, the citizenry that we, that we serve? And what is the impact ultimately as it relates to policing to uh, the, the, the actual profession and actually to the nation? Uh, because the decisions that you make uh, at at a uh, at, at an executive level in law enforcement and as a peace officer, you have to weigh impacts at all times. And as a police officer, all you're weighing is the impact what's in front of you. Uh, but again, every step of the way, the impacts of your decisions as a uh, influencer uh, increases, and so does that to be your field of vision. And so uh, today, I, I I stay awake because. When I go home, I'm going to be held responsible for uh, what a 21-year-old kid's going to do in the middle of the night when they make a, sp- a split-second decision. Uh, you know what happens uh, in a pursuit, what happens uh, in a use of force incident, and so you you it's it's a 24/7 job and it's 24/7 worry. But again, it's something that I would I, I wouldn't trade it for anything, uh, even even now at this age. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. In my best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? 
That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. dive into some of the issues that people are talking about in the country about police right now. You know, you and I have talked about it, and I know how much you love the police. I know your pop uh, was a cop as well, so it's kind of deep in the blood there. I know you've been able to learn and enjoy in multiple different places and venues, so you've kind of seen it from angles. I know you've got lots of good friends who are chiefs. You know, you're president of the... Um, I had a conversation recently with someone, and as much as I don't want to say this, it feels like we have not just one or two bad apples in our police forces, but we've got enough of a problem that if you were in any other industry, you would say, guys, we have a major problem. doesn't mean that everyone's bad, but it also means it's not just one or two. Like, there's no way to look at this and not say that there isn't kind of a systemic set of issues, including what feels like not one or two bad apples, but a lot of bad apples. You agree with that? You disagree with that? You know, look, here's the truth of the matter. I think we have to provide context to what's going on with policing. Number one, let's let's realize the how big policing is. It's 800,000 police officers representing about 18,000 police departments. I used to always say the few bad apples. 
and I just had a conversation about a, about 30 minutes ago with some of my chiefs about, you know, some of the guys are mad because you're, you're saying we don't just have a few bad apples, that we have bushels of apples. And I said, well, it's the truth. If, if we've had to run out in our department, uh, uh, close to 170 people now in four years, how can we say that's a few bad apples? It's bushels of apples. So having said that, we have to acknowledge that we do have some issues, that we do have problems, but we also have to put things in the context in that uh, we have bushels of bad apples, but then we have uh, fields upon fields of good apples. And the problem with policing truly is, um, it's really the, the chiefs. I, I always say it's a leadership problem uh, because when you look at, the community knows bad policing when they see it. And I think what happens is no one likes to see people fail. And you've heard this term that the use of deadly force was lawful, but awful. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. But when it's lawful, but awful, why aren't we holding people accountable for awful, right? It shouldn't be, it should, it should be lawful, but necessary. Lawful, but could not have been avoided. Not lawful, but awful. And I think that too many chiefs tolerate lawful, but awful instead of demanding lawful but necessary as it relates to use of deadly force. I mean, I just had to fire four members of our department last week after we fell short and, uh, and as a result, someone died that I don't believe in my heart of hearts that uh, should have died. And so having said that, it's important to also though, lift up the good cops for every bad incident. It's also a fact that we have thousands of good incidents, but you know, you're in the media. If, uh, what does the what what does the media say in terms of the news? If it bleeds, it bleeds. You know, good outcomes don't bleed, and so they don't lead. So we've got to do a better job of holding the bushels of bad apples accountable for when they do things that are lawful but awful, and we have to do a better job of making sure we provide some context by pushing out the good things that we're doing, so people at least okay, that was horrible. But I know that they that that there are all other good instances. And let me just say one last thing, Carlos. We are under so much. Arguably, this profession is probably the most scrutinized in this country. Peace officers. We've got cell phones. We've got everything else. I I'd like to say that as bad as things can be, and as much work as we need to do, in a lot of ways, police are well ahead of corporate America and the rest of America as it relates to inclusion, uh, opportunities, uh, as it relates to diversity. You know, look who's the chief here in, 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 uh, in, in Houston and the president of the major city chiefs, compare our diversity and the opportunities that people of color have and women with policing to corporate America, to the newsrooms, to the newspapers. I mean, uh, it goes beyond policing. I think that no matter how good we do, we're never gonna get it perfect. And we have to address the systemic uh, discrimination and racism across a lot of other venues uh, in society. Until we do that, we're, we're going to be having these conversations for generations to come. Chief, I appreciate a lot of what you shared there, and, and I think it is right and thoughtful and powerful. A couple of questions as I hear that. One, how do your fellow chiefs hear that? In other words, are you Serpico? Are, are, you, are you the guy who's coming in and saying out loud, what some other people believe, but what other people are like, hey, dude, keep your mouth shut. Like, it is what it is. It's hard enough as it is. 
I got going on what I have going on. Like, what do your other chiefs say? Because not everyone was marching with pro with Black Lives Matters protesters. Not everyone was kneeling with people. Not everyone is saying bushels. A lot of people are still saying few bad apples. What do they say to you in quiet moments when no media is around? It's just you and them. What are they saying to you? Well, I, I think that uh, first of all, they elected me to be their 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 president for the 69 largest police departments in the country in the nine largest in the United and in, in, in Canada. And they agree. I mean, by and large, the chiefs agree. But here's the challenge. Uh, I've been blessed that, you know, my dad used to say, if you're not afraid to lose, you can't. You've already won. And he used to tell, always tell us that kids, uh, you know, just do your do your darn job. Just go out there and do what you think is right. But we, we are on out of the 69 American police chiefs in big cities, 18 will be gone by the end of the year, including some very progressive chiefs. And the problem is because it's such a politicized uh, position in terms of mayors that immediately when something goes wrong, you know, uh, they, they, they've got to find, they got a scapegoat of uh, folks. And so a lot of chiefs aren't, don't have the, don't have the opportunity that I have working for mayor Sylvester Turner, who's my mayor here, uh, or the mindset that I have that, hey, the good Lord opened the door, he'll close it on his time, and he'll open another one. And so a lot of chiefs feel very strongly, but in some instances they don't have the leeway or, or the support of the political leadership to speak out. Uh, but this next month we'll be in New Orleans at, a, at, our, at our meeting. Uh, we haven't had an in-face meeting for over a year, uh, for, over, for, over, for almost a year now because of COVID. Uh, and I think that we'll be putting out a very powerful statement by the time we're done with that meeting about reform and the need for reform and where we're at, not just in policing, but beyond. Because I, I, I always tell my chiefs, look, and I always tell young assistant police chiefs across the country that I mentor, if you're, if you're afraid to lose your job, don't take it in the first place. Because uh, the most replaceable person in, in the police department is the police chief. And quite frankly, if you're paralyzed by the fear of losing your job, you won't be able to do it. Just do your job. Let's speak uh, for itself. So in uh, next month, you're going to see us putting out a statement that's going to tell people how we feel. Because like I tell folks, history is watching us. God's watching us. The community's watching us. And they're all going to hold us accountable, not just for what we say, not just for what we do, but for what we fail to say and do. And when you have people on both sides of the extreme doing crazy stuff and we don't speak out, then you know what? The community knows that. The community knows who's speaking out. They're paying attention who's speaking out. When George Floyd was murdered, I promise you on my social media and in this community, they're looking to see what does my police chief think about that? And so it's a huge mistake for leaders to think, regardless of the political uh, reality they, they're operating in, it's a huge mistake for them to think that people aren't watching and are going to, and, and our ability, our willingness to speak or not, or, or say or not say stuff will impact our standing in that community. Chief, talk about some of the changes you think would make a difference. I mean, you hear people talk about defund the police. You hear people talk about abolition of the police. You hear people talk about shifting responsibilities away from the police. So saying, we want you to do these three things, but not the eight things that you're currently doing. If you were to try and prioritize, I know there are 12 million things people could say, what would be the top three things? What would have made the biggest difference in the lives, not only of Breonna Taylor and of George Floyd, 
but but of a whole suite of other people um, who are counting on the police, what top three things would you want to see done? Lord, that's a loaded question. I think first and foremost, we have 18,000 police departments. And to think that in the year 2020 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, you were still allowed to put your knee on the neck of a suspect, you know, uh, of a, pit, a person you're taking into custody and, and put your knee on them. We've got to have some, we have to come up for some standardized policies to take away the, the, the authorization of police officers outside of a fight for your life, right? Where you are in the, you're out there by yourself in a fight for your life. A guy rips off your mic cord and trying to choke you out. Outside of that, you need to leave the neck alone. That's not, that's too dangerous. We need to have policies on, on those type of, that are standardized across the country because what happens anywhere in the country in the, in the, in the advent of social media impacts the standing of the profession nationwide. Nobody cares if it happened in Ferguson or Minneapolis and Houston, New York. We're all going to be judged by that. So we've got to have some standardized policies. We need to really have a, uh, a national database tracking what police officers are, 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 are dismissed or leave service under duress uh, or in lieu of being fired. We have to look at, um, uh, uh, I believe, as it relates to uh, the, the immunity issue, I don't think we can get rid of qualified immunity, which is one extreme what people want. But I think we need to look at how we can uh, tweak it or address it or or soften it so we can balance uh, the uh, the ability of people to actually be able to hold uh, police officers and, and their employers accountable. I, I'm a realist. Getting rid of qualified immunity across the country is probably not going to happen, but I think that we have to address it and go back to a standard that uh, that is a little bit more amenable to making people, uh, having giving people the ability to hold uh, bad cops accountable. And so I think when you do those things, uh, we, we uh, as, it, as it relates to defunding the police issue, look, when you talk to my black community and my uh, and my Hispanic community, disproportionately are the ones that are being impacted by violent crime the most in Houston and poor white communities that, inc- that include poor white people um, because nobody talks about poor white people. And then people want to know why are these why are these white people angry? Well, nobody talks about them. The American dreams escape some of those, a lot of members in that community. They, if I talk about getting rid of the police, I just got a, a message from my mayor. Hey, you're closing the storefront uh, in a predominantly immigrant minority community and they don't want you to close it what what the minority community wants is better policing professional policing uh they want to feel safe from bad cops and they want to be, feel safe from the everyday criminal so we've got to invest continue to invest in the appropriate training equipping and oversight of policing and lastly uh out of a lot of lists i'll just give you uh, one other thing is that the notion of let's make somebody else go to these uh, mental health calls. Hey, we're, we're, we're happy with that. I think the fire department might be able to be better suited for a lot of those calls. And I think they've got the time uh, to go to a lot of those calls. We have to reimagine some of our response to that. And lastly, in terms of mental health and people in crisis, I've got 12 CERT teams, which is a police officer that's specially trained with a pra- mental health practitioner. They do phenomenal work, but 12 teams ain't going to cut it for a city that has 40,000 mental health crisis calls a year. We've got to invest in what we know is working. And so a lot that can be done, 
And we're going to continue to push for a lot of those things at the national level. How worried are you about whether white supremacists have infiltrated police departments in meaningful enough numbers that that's also part of the issue, that you don't just have bad apples or bushels of apples, but you have determined people who have focused agendas who are joining with with a, a purpose in their joining. How worried are you about that? Is that a major issue, Chief? And if so, should there be federal should there be a greater federal focus on systemically rooting out white supremacists in various police departments? I, I think we need to uh, do everything we can to, to weed out hate and hatred in society, period. Uh, we had a cadet not too long ago that actually actually told another cadet, hey, I'm, I'm a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. Shock. I mean, we were just shocked because as much as we do in terms of looking at social media and investigating people, we know it exists. We know that people will try to infiltrate, whether it's an, uh, you know, an outlaw, outlaw motorcycle gang, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, 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 a Hispanic gang, a black gang, criminal elements and people that uh, are racist or white supremacist will try to infiltrate police department. It is a challenge. And it's something we have to be uh, vigilant and uh, on the lookout for. And this guy, needless to say, uh, he said that it was, I'm so proud of the cadet that reported it right away. And we got rid of him. And the thing we did, we went back and was trying to say, what is it that we could have done from a background standpoint that we should have done that we didn't do? Or what is it that we're not doing that we need to do? And, you know, we cast a wide net on social media, on Facebook, on uh, Instagram, to see what people are thinking. Uh, but that one got, thank God, that he opened his big mouth and self-identified. But it is a challenge. It is something uh, I would like to think that it's not widespread. But how do you know what's in, how do you really know what's in somebody's heart? It's hard. It, it, how do you assess it? Uh, so we have to be uh, vigilant and something we should all be concerned with. Chief, how worried are you about the fact that that in lots of groups, not just police, but lots of groups all around the world and across time, there's this sense of snitches get stitches, right? That that you don't want people to tell on each other, that even if people are concerned, worried, disappointed, frustrated that someone's breaking the rules, the notion is us before them. And is that also a meaningful enough issue that if you really are going to have broad, meaningful change, that it's not just a national database, it's not just changing the policies on you know use of force around necks, it's not just uh, X, Y, and Z, but that it also uh, is a larger changing, if you will, of the heart and, and soul around, you know, I've got a responsibility to speak out. And is that just... A, is that important? And B, even if it is, is that naive? Is it is it even possible that there a new norm could be settled? You know what? I've been I've been around for 34 years, right, doing this stuff. And the sad truth, you know, again, points of reference, right? How do I assess where policing is at? I think you're 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 a little younger than me, but uh, uh, you know, when I started policing, where it's at today, as to where it was at in '86, it has. I mean, we have we have done. Uh, we have come a long way. I am proud of the fact that most of our complaints are not are, are internal. Uh, that uh, the the community has invested a lot of uh, of their wealth, a lot of their tax dollars, in in uh, accountability systems like body worn cameras. We we do a lot of auditing by policy, and we are 
weeding out bad, bad policing. And guess where those are coming from? From our own internal audits. And we just, uh, I just got briefed yesterday on use of force where the sergeant, uh, he, he did the review on the use of force that the officer reported, but he assessed it as it was within policy, not even close. So that sergeant and that officer both have a hearing with me in the next couple of weeks where they there's there's a chance they won't be an officer anymore. They won't be a sergeant anymore. That uh, They'll be demoted or they'll be fired. Here's what we have to do. We have to understand that you have a duty to report. You've got to have a solid policy and you have to have consequences, significant consequences for people that don't report misconduct. And so... People will rise to the level of expectation you set. And most organizations, oh, yeah, if you lie, you die. That's what I tell my people. If you get a sustained policy violation for lying about your duties here, if you lie, you die. And if you ever come to Houston, ask any one of my members wearing this patch, what does the chief say? If you lie, what happens? If you don't say you die, I will buy you dinner wherever you want to uh, eat. But you got to give me the officer's name because I need to go correct that. Uh, so what happens is if you enforce the standard, people get it. They will rise to the level of expectation we set, right? But it's not just what you set, it's what you enforce. You have to enforce it, you have to make your expectations clear, and you have to be consistent in the application of that policy. And, and it works. I mean, it's it, 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 our, our, our external complaints have gone way down, and our internal complaints have gone way, do, way up, and which is a good thing. As I hear you talk about things, you care a lot about management. If someone didn't know any better, you sound a little bit like a management guru. Have you done a lot of management training? And if so, how has that worked? Has it been formal? Has it been with advisors? Is it reading? Like, how do you, when I hear you talk about lay things out, enforce them, et cetera, and even your level of specificity, that reminds me a lot of the really good managers that I know. I mean, you listen to coaches, you listen to basketball coaches, uh, you know, we're at the end of the day, we're coaches, right? When you're leading people, it's about coaching people. Um, and uh, I think that my my journey started with the mother and father that taught me how to think and, you know, how to think for myself and how to believe in myself and how to build relationships because it's, that's part of what we're doing, right? You can't change culture via memo from behind a desk. You just can't. I'm out in the streets with my officers, out in the community. with the co You can't build relationships from behind a desk. I'm out in the field of the community. So I think it's been a combination of my uh, training uh, with uh, with California Highway Patrol. I, we had a sergeant's academy. It was phenomenal. They did a lot of training uh, for us, uh, gave us a lot of training. And, and then uh, for me, it's really been about paying attention, always paying attention, being a sponge. Um, getting out of your comfort zone. Too many police officers will get into, and, they, and, and we make a huge mistake as leaders when we put a personal color, we'll put them in the uh, community outreach division, right? Where they're getting like the same year of experience over and over again. And then when they try to promote, they can't compete because they're competing with people that have a, a wider breadth of experience. So the, re the way that I did my career is that I would stay in an assignment for two years be a sponge, learn everything I could, 
and then move on to another challenge. That way, when you go compete in your interview process, you can say you know a little bit about a lot instead of a lot about a little bit. Because the higher you go, the the the, the broader range of topics that you need to be familiar with. Now, and so I think that that's been uh, part of the key to my success has been a, to to really look for opportunities to learn. I learned from seeing, from touching, and from building relationships. Networking, man. Uh, I got to meet Bill. Bill Bratton became a dear friend and a mentor uh, when he went to Los Angeles, and I was a young assistant chief, and he was LAPD. Uh, Charles Ramsey, another friend and mentor. Daryl Stevens, another friend and mentor. So, uh, to me, it's really been more about paying attention, listening, networking, and a lot of common sense. None of this is rocket science, Carlos. I mean, it's just it ain't rocket science. We had a horrible incident where we fired four people the other day. Look at how quiet the city is. It's amazing when you just simply do the right thing, how the community gets it. The community doesn't expect perfection. Uh, people know and uh, that either we're going to make mistakes of the mind or mistakes of the heart. What people demand is accountability, that we hold people accountable. Uh, and so I think that I've learned that as a child, that my mom said, which means you're going to break for all the dishes you break. So they'll be breaking dishes. And, you know, again, it isn't rocket science. It's really about caring, uh, being engaged, paying attention, and you can't be an, an absentee landlord. Uh, you know, if I'm responsible for the city, so I want to make sure that I'm uh, spending time in the city with the people that we serve and the people that we lead. Chief, I know I only have a few more minutes, so I'm going to try and quickly hit four or five things with you. Um, Chief, what do you say to people who say, smart guy, good guy, but he's a showboat. He's spending too much time in the media. He's not doing his job, and he's showing the rest of us up. What do you say to those folks? Yeah, you know what? Look, if, first of all, you don't worry about what people say uh, because, you know, we're li- all you got to do is follow my social media, and you know I've got plenty of haters on all sides. Transparency and familiarity breeds trust. If people think they know you as a leader, if they think they know where you stand as a leader, and if they think you're a straight shooter, whether you they agree with you or not, that's half the battle. And so when people criticize me, this guy is always, you know what? What I'm promoting is my department, my profession, and ultimately the relationship between this community or the communities that we serve and the men and women that we lead. And so, uh, hey, guilty as charged. They're right. But guess what? When I'm driving in a neighborhood and people come up and they know my name and they know me by my first name, they call me Art. I'll never forget a fire chief I worked with in another city. We walk into a studio and the little old lady in the front, the, 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 the receptionist, says, hey, Chief Art, how are you? And I'm, oh, ma'am, I'm so, I'm doing great. Good to see you. Then she calls this other chief by their first name, and that chief was offended. I worked hard for this title. And what people don't understand is when homeless people in my, in my city, I don't know where they're watching TV, but they come up and say, hey, Chief Art, man, how you doing? That means they think they know you. And that means that you've connected. And what, and people don't understand, you don't build relationships by not, by not getting to know one another. 
know, get out and get to know your neighbor. Be a showboat in your neighborhood. Be a showboat in your church. Get your church out to go on the other side of the tracks and get to know that congregation. So uh, I said guilty as charged, and guess what? It works. Look at our city. Look at look at our city with the protests. People are saying, oh, he's out there showboating. No, I'm out there connecting with people, feeling their pain, being empathetic, hearing them, let absorbing some of the anger because I'd rather people be angry as, at me, surrounded by thousands of people by myself at night, angry people, than to have people throwing bricks at my police officers or tearing down our city or, God forbid, killing people. So, yeah, again, guilty as charged. Next. <laughs> I, you, but you know what, Chief? I love it, and I fundamentally agree with you. I love it, and I fundamentally agree with you. Chief, talk quickly about your faith, and I'm sorry to ask you to do it quickly because I know it means more to you, but I've heard you raise it a number of times. I've heard you raise it in a way that it's clear to me that it matters to you. I assume it gives you strength, but talk to me a little bit about your faith. Well, I was, I was, uh, I was, I was raised as a Christian, baptized Catholic. Uh, my, my, my dad didn't like, uh, he believed in God deeply, but it was, he felt that was a very personal thing. So he didn't believe in organized religion. But when I was about 10, my big brother, Nelson, who's six years older than me, told me, Hey, dummy, uh, you're a failed abortion. I go, I'm sorry. What are you, what are you saying? You're a failed abortion. What do you mean? Well, you know, mom and uh, dad tried to induce a miscarriage with mom on you. So I went and I talked to my parents. And I confronted them and I said, I might get emotional, this is a hard one. And I said, uh, hey, Nelson is saying you guys tried to get rid of me when, you know, that you tried to get rid of the pregnancy. And my mom and dad, instead of BSing me, they looked at me and said, you know, he's telling you the truth. He said, son, uh, you know, we didn't, you were the fourth of four kids. There wasn't enough food to go around in this communist rule for three you were going to be brought into a world, into a communist regime with little hope and a little and, and, and not a much of a future. We we did it as a as an act of love. We wanted God to send you to a better circumstances than communist Cuba. And then my dad looked at me, but you know what? God had other plans. He had a plan for you. He had a purpose for you. Uh, so you need to go out and, uh, you know, go get it. And so I think that. Uh, I've only shared that a couple of times. First time was at a big speech. And uh, you know what? God saved me for a reason. And it wasn't to go out and be a bum. It wasn't to go out and be a coward. It's to go out and lead in the way that he puts in my heart. And whatever happens, happens. Because at the end of the day, we're on God's hands. Yeah, I, Chief, I, um, uh, I'm glad it didn't work either. And, uh, and you know, it's interesting, Chief. Another very good friend of mine, uh, a writer and barber, Anthony Hamilton, he's from Dallas, he's from the Oak Cliff uh, neighborhood there. Um, he describes himself as a strong child. And he was the son of parents who I think were 14 and 16 when they had him. And, um, and he, is, he has turned uh, maybe an improbable beginning uh, uh, into, I think, a special journey. And, um, and so, um, I, uh, I, I can imagine how proud your parents must be. And it says something about them that their reaction to that kind of difficult question is to be honest, because you and I both know that for all of us, when you're under that kind of pressure, when that pressure from someone you love, like they clearly love you, that's not all of our instincts because we're embarrassed and, and we wish we did other things. And so... I bet you that also has traveled through you as well in a very powerful way because you were comfortable with 
openness and candor in a way that not all of us are. And, and I think that that actually has given you a, uh, um, a greater opportunity to have impact um, uh, because you are that comfortable with that. Because not, you know, it's, it's, hard for, uh, it's hard for many of us. Hey, I'm going to shift to maybe a slightly lighter uh, subject. Um, uh, I'm always curious about people's love stories. Uh, I know you've been married for a long time. How did you get lucky in this life? And, uh, and, and why has it worked? And, and what, if anything, have you learned about how you could be doing this thing better? Oh, Lord, I, I, I've met this, uh, this blonde lady uh, uh, from the Midwest, born in Los Angeles to hippie parents, by the way. She was born in Modesto, California. They were like traveling college professors uh, in a little VW uh, bus back in uh, late six, in 69. And I, I went to, uh, I, I, I hired a buddy for a friend's, uh, in San Juan Capistrano, a, a friend of mine was getting engaged. So we did an engagement party. I, I told my other buddy, hey, let's go half and get this DJ, this karaoke DJ, Tony. And so my buddy says, yeah, Paul says, yeah, let's do it. So then uh, I called Tony, he goes, I'll do it. But I've got a gig in Laguna Beach with a bunch of young professionals. This was Thanksgiving Saturday, uh, 20, 22 years ago or, or more. And uh, he goes, I'll do it, but you got you to help me at that gig, and I want you to meet a friend of mine. <clears throat> well, the friend of his, female, that he wanted me to meet, brings my future wife to the party. They walk in. I meet the friend. I go, well, she doesn't. That's not, that's not a connection. But I see the crazy blonde that I call Lucy. I'm Ricky and she's Lucy. She goes straight <laughs> to the food table. And I go, that's my kind of woman comes into a party, <laughs> goes straight to the food table. I go, my help you with cutting that ham. She said, do I look like I need some help? That night we had uh, breakfast at a Denny's, talked a lot. She went home and told her dad, I met the man I'm going to marry. I had been, I had been married. She had not. I had two kids. She had none. And, uh, and, and she's been stalking me ever since. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. By the way, I, 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 hey, hey, Carlos, I told her, I told her my name was, uh, Mr. Garcia, another Cuban who happens to be an actor because I don't like people know I'm a cop right away and come to find out, uh, her dad, her parents weren't too crazy about her dating a cop. Now they love me. <laughs> <laughs> They're hippies. I love it. I love that. That, uh, that that worked out. Hey, what advice do you give to young ones about love and marriage? When you, because I'm sure people are knocking on your door, not just about work, but I bet you people ask you about love and relationships. What do you? What have you learned in this life? What do you tell them? It's work, man. I mean, uh, relationships are work. Uh, I can tell you that I had, I had my first marriage work with two kids. Uh, my finances would have been much better than they are, and. I always tell people if you, if you can make the first marriage work, because it's always work. I mean, it's uh, it's life's a roller coaster. We know how uh, relationships can be. So I say, if you if at all possible, especially if you have children, uh, try to make it work. And what I one of the things that I really love about my wife, what she did is that she helped to raise fifty fifty custody because I'm I'm a father, not a donor. If you know what I mean. You know, those are my kids. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to be in their lives. Um, and she said, I don't want to have any kid till we raise yours. And that's what she did. And so uh, I was lucky that uh, she was a good stepmom uh, and a good friend. And most importantly, really taught my kids how to study because I, uh, 
she had more patience than this crazy old man did. And, and they're both successful. The other ones, and now we have a 12-year-old that I always tell him, Kit, he's really smart. I said, you're going to either be rich or in prison. Choose wisely. <laughs> <laughs> hey, smart people that want to take shortcuts, you know where they end up? In jail. So I said, you got to do the work no matter how smart you are. Hey, uh, Chief, I'm going to finish up with what I call my rapid fire. I'm going to give you six or seven things. I want your immediate reaction to them. Um, your favorite movie of all time, or one of your favorite movies? Scarface. Interesting. And who's your favorite character in Scarface? Is it Pacino or is it? Pacino. Oh, so you like Pacino across the board. You like Serpico, you like Scarface. I assume you like Godfather, you like them all. Yeah, yeah, powerful, powerful. Toughest uh, criminal or crime lord you've ever come up against? I was actually a cop that I investigated and we put in federal prison when I was a younger officer. He's out of prison now, so I won't use his name. Guy's scary. <laughs> because why? Oh, this guy is nuts. I mean, this guy, uh, I, I found his uh, his father-in-law's uh, girlfriend living in the desert in, uh, out in Arizona, and she wouldn't even talk to me because she's insisting that they killed her sister. I mean, I could go on and on. This will be in the book, Watson. We'll have to write a book so you can read it. I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. Your favorite comedian? You know what? Uh, what's his name? Uh, the Hispanic dude, that the Fluffy. Oh, you? How you like what's his name? Fluffy. Ga uh, Gabriel or Gabby? Uh, what's his name? Iglesias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gabriel Iglesias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not so fluffy. Wait, he's losing weight. He's got. He's got to stay fluffy. I love that. I love that. I love that. Um, what do you think when I say Blue Lives Matter? They do, but the answer to Blue Lives Matter was uh, the, the 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 problem with Blue Lives Matter. What happened with that and all white and, and all lives matter? is that when Black Lives Matter, that came up, the answer was simply to say and acknowledge Black lives do matter. And because we want to affirm that Black lives matter, that's not saying that blue lives don't matter and everything else. And here's the problem with American society, the elephant in the room, is that too many people that will say blue lives matter and all lives matter and all this other stuff have yet to utter the words in, uh, 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 in, in words and in heart and in deeds that Black Lives Matter. And yet they don't understand why there's still so much anger, rightfully so, in our society, when all we had to do was acknowledge the fact Black Lives do matter. And I was one of the first chiefs to talk about that, and, uh, and I still say Black Lives Matter. And I don't need to talk about any other lives because it's not one or the other, and Black Lives Matter. Are you Democrat or Republican? I'm a rhino dino which means that I'm too far to the left for the right, too far to the right for the left. And so I'm like every other American uh, where I'm frustrated because uh, thanks to uh, gerrymandering by both parties, uh, I think one's done a better job than the other. Uh, elections are, uh, they're, they're really settled in the primary. And that's a problem because you can't focus on good policy. You got to focus on appeasing the extremes and that's not good for the American people. That's why I can never be elected the dog catcher. I'm too, too, too moderate. What, what would you, what, if, what role, what office would you love to serve in? If uh, you clearly have an interest in policy and in the whole, the big picture, as, as you said. And so if you could, what would you enjoy? What do you think you would enjoy? What would you be good at? Are, are you more of a, 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 a mayor? Are you a governor? Are you a senator? Are you a congressman? Are you a cabinet official? What, what would you be most helpful what would you be best in serving people at? 
what? I've been accused of everything I do is because I'm running for office for the 13 years I've been in Texas. And uh, if you look at the positions I've taken very publicly, whether it's on gun policy or immigration or, you know, talking about the extremes on the left and the right, uh, if, if I'm running for office, I'm an idiot because I've managed to off both ends of the extreme. So uh, would I would I enjoy that uh, being, a, a you know, an elected official? Yeah, but I'm a realist. I can't be elected. So I'll just continue to serve in this capacity. And I love being a police chief because I've been a police chief in Texas for 13 years. And my friends like to tease me and say, you act like you're a sheriff, like you're elected. And I go, you're right, I do. Because ultimately, we all work for the people, whether, whether we're appointed or elected. Did you ever meet my girl, Lupe Valdez? Oh, yeah, Lupe. Yeah, I've known her for years. How is she? How did you know Lupe? You know, I, I have not seen her in 15 years. But when I first started out in television, she was one of the first people I interviewed. And I always tell was people. Was in Dallas? Was that in Dallas? She was in Dallas. She was in Dallas. She took me riding on horses. First time I was ever up on a horse. The horse started galloping away. It was Come about visit. to throw we'll me off. The, what's that? Come and visit. We'll put you up, man. We'll take you out with our. I got a nice Shetland pony for you. Oh, man. Hey, hey, I'll take whatever you have. And if a Shetland pony is the only thing I'm safe on, I'm okay with that, too. That's all right. I, uh, I was. Hey, we'll get you up. Come to rodeo. When COVID is over, you need to come to our rodeo and uh, come and come do rodeo with us. Oh, man. You know, I actually would have a fun time with that. I actually, I would enjoy that. That is good. That is good. Hey, Chief, final question. We'll have the, we'll have the Cuban cowboy and the black cowboy. I love that. Together. I, hey, as you know, there used to be a lot of black cowboys back in the day. In fact, there are, we've got tons of black cowboys here in Houston. It is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Lots. You know, something is, something's happening with your city of Houston. I will tell you, on our show, which is still young, we've had one interesting person after another uh, come from Houston, whether Beyonce and their mom or Lizzo or Megan the Stallion or interesting actors or others. Houston is, um, I feel like Houston's the one to watch when it comes to big cities. It's the city, it's the city of tomorrow, man. We are the city, we are, we are a reflection of what America is gonna look like in the next 20 years. We're the most diverse city. People here get along, man. North, South, East, West, Black, White, Brown, Asian. It doesn't matter. We speak every, every, we eat every, every, every cuisine, language. It is a huge melting pot. And for those that hate diversity, just think back to, to, to uh, Hurricane Harvey. When the going gets tough, Houstonians come together. And we set a beautiful example for the rest of the country and the world. It's a great place. Hey, Chief, I love Houston. My favorite uncle used to live down in Texas City, so I used to drive the 45. So, uh, uh, Chief, uh, w what a real pleasure. I appreciate you uh, being on, and uh, you know this won't be the last time. No, brother. Come and see us, man. Rodeo, don't forget, rodeo on the other side of COVID. Oh, man, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right, Carlos. Love you, my brother. Thanks for listening to the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this interview, please leave us a review on iTunes. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. 
Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.